The Flint water crisis started in 2014 when state and local officials in Flint, Michigan, failed to apply corrosive inhibitors to the water supply from the Flint River. Toxic levels of lead began leaching into the drinking water. Around 100,000 Flint residents were exposed. Lead has a huge effect on child development and can lead to long-term intellectual and physical challenges and a higher chance of developing Alzheimer's. And it's important to remember that these are not just developmental delays. This reaches into all areas of brain development, touching even the ability to make good choices, healthy decisions, as well as cognitive function. In 2021, a total of 34 felony counts and seven misdemeanors came down on the former Governor Rick Snyder and eight other officials for their role in the crisis. Two others were charged with involuntary manslaughter. Ten years after the beginning of the crisis, the legacy of distrust and anger remains in Flint. From First Focus on Children, this is Speaking of Kids. I'm Bruce Leslie. And I'm Maselich Luby. Speaking of Kids is a podcast that puts kids at the center of public policy. You may be wondering why we are digging back 10 years to talk about the Flint water crisis. But that's where many of us first met one of our guests today, Dr. Mona Hanna-Atisha. She came to national prominence for her leading studies in exposing the lead levels in the Flint water supply. Today, we welcome Dr. Hannah Atisha and her colleague, Dr. Luke Schaefer, both tremendous champions for children in their own right. They are working at the intersection of public health and poverty as it impacts children. Today, they will talk about their prescription for improving the lives of Flint's children, improving their health, and reducing child poverty. Dr. Mona Hanna-Atisha is the Associate Dean for Public Health at Michigan State University. She is the founding director of the Pediatric Public Health Initiative in Flint, Michigan. She is reimagining how society can eliminate infant poverty with a first-in-the-nation program, Rx Kids. Dr. Hanna-Atisha is the author of the widely acclaimed book, What the Eyes Don't See, a story of crisis, resistance, and hope in an American city. Dr. Luke Schaefer is a professor of social justice at the University of Michigan. At the University of Michigan, he is also the inaugural director of Poverty Solutions, an interdisciplinary presidential initiative that partners with communities and policymakers to find new ways to prevent and alleviate poverty. His work has been supported by the National Science Foundation, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and the U.S. Census Bureau, among other sources. And he's the co-author of the book, $2 a Day, Living on Almost Nothing in America. And we are so excited to jump into this conversation today with Dr. Mona and Professor Luke to talk about their new first-of-its-kind program, Rx Kids. Welcome, Dr. Mona, Professor Luke. We are so excited to have you today on our podcast. We'll start with you, Dr. Mona. We'd love to hear a little bit about your backstory. Why did you decide to become a doctor? And in particular, why did you choose pediatrics? Oh, well, it is great to be here with you. We're so excited to have this conversation. Wow. So my backstory. So I'll share that in the next couple of hours that we have together. <laughs> you know, I think I, I saw medicine as really the most intimate form of caring for people. And then I chose pediatrics for many reasons. Kids are 
joy and fun and inspiring and energizing. But the beauty of pediatrics is our role in prevention. It's not so much about taking care of the kid in front of us today, but it is about taking care of their tomorrow, making sure that they can be and do anything that they want to be. Um, so that's what I love about pediatrics. I also love that this is a specialty where, you know, part of my job as a clinician, as an educator, as a researcher, but it's also an advocate. So it is very much part of my job as a pediatrician to elevate the voices of children in, in many different spaces. So it's the best job in the world. I pinch myself that I get to do this work. I love that. Well, we loved, loved, loved your book. For our listeners, the title of it is What the Eyes Don't See, A Story of Crisis, Hope, and Resistance in an American City. So can you tell our listeners about the Flint water crisis and how you discovered this American tragedy and what policy solutions are needed to improve child health and well-being for the kids of Flint? But, you know, your solutions that I've heard you talk about in the past are also very universal. So... Yeah, what are those things we should be doing? It's been said that, you know, pediatricians are the ultimate witnesses to failed social policies. And it's literally kind of in my exam rooms that I see this play out. And, and that's kind of what happened with the Flint water crisis. Because of policy choices, our water source was changed. It wasn't treated properly. And an entire population of children were exposed to a neurotoxin. And this all could have been, you know, prevented. Uh, my role, I brought to kind of light the science that our kids were in harm's way. Research I never should have had to do. You don't need research that kids are being poisoned to protect them. So since then, you know, we've really kind of been working around the clock to put into place a, a path towards recovery, but really to inform policy, to make sure that we do a better job preventing similar toxicities. And the toxicities are not just things like lead in your water, but it's the toxicities of of poverty and systemic racism and disinvestment and, you know, lack of housing and nutrition and, you know, all these different things that, that make our children sick. So we've been able to really, you know, inform policy. One of my favorite stories is, you know, the Infrastructure Act that just passed. It invests in roads and bridges and broadband, but it's also the largest federal investment in water infrastructure. And because of our advocacy, includes the replacement of lead pipes across the country. So that's one example of many where we've been able to inform policy and to kind of really shift to a prevention, child-centric, science-based focus. And Luke, you've spent many years working on issues related to child poverty and family economics. Can you tell us in the audience, you know, what really brought you to hone in on child poverty and center it in your work? Well, my dad had a career crisis when I was in middle school, and we uh, ended up for a long period just not having a lot of money and knowing what it was like to worry about, you know, every month and paying the bills. Luckily, we had a grandma and grandpa that could help us out from time to time. So I could definitely recognize that I wasn't growing up in the middle class, but I also sort of felt like I wasn't poor necessarily because we didn't have to ask for help at the welfare office. So that drove my interest to figuring out what we could do for families with kids. I started out in casework, working in emergency relief, like helping families uh, who were struggling to pay their rent or were threatened with having their utilities shut off. And that's incredibly important work. But I was just struck by the fact that every single month I could be guaranteed that there'd be some families who couldn't pay their rent or they couldn't pay the utility bill. 
And sometimes it was the same, but usually it was different families. But what was certain was there would always be families who were struggling. So that really struck me as a structural cycle of poverty. It was really about what types of situations society puts people in. And so that's what really drove my interest to work on policy and think about all the ways that a, a city or a state or the federal government can shift policies to really empower families to live healthy and productive lives. And you have a great new book out too, which is called The Injustice of Place, Uncovering the Legacy of Poverty in America. So I will say that I'm in the middle of reading it. I was hoping to finish it before we talked to you today, but it's awesome. And I just wanted you to tell us a little bit about the findings of your book and what policy solutions you are proposing, including, you know, the work you've also passed on on the importance of the child tax credit being fully refundable. Yeah, my first book in 2015 was called $2 a Day, and it was about really, really poor families and the lack of having any money. So families might have food assistance, and you know, there's a great set of public charities out there that help families who are struggling. But what does it mean to not have any cash? And, and what kind of situation does that put families in when they need to buy toilet paper or toothbrushes or pay the utility bill or whatever it is? This uh, next book was really about really, really poor places. Once you start to look at places, so this could be counties across the United States, or it could really even just be zip codes, you know, within a county, you can see these huge differences. You know, you're talking about more than a decade difference in life expectancy, like really even how long you live. We're talking about infant outcomes, like what are the challenges that uh, you come into the world with? And you're talking about social mobility. So in some places, the American dream that if you grow up poor, you can rise to the middle class is alive and well. And we see that in a lot of communities. In other places, if you grow up poor, you're, you're pretty much likely to be poor as an adult. So the new book really tries to figure out some of the ways that we can address what's going on in communities. And it really ties it back to history. A lot of times we sort of give a nod to history, but then we proceed with our policy solutions like all of our problems appeared out of thin air. And in the case of all of the places that we got to know in, in Kentucky and then down in the Cotton Belt and down in South Texas, the, the challenges really stem from things that have happened over decades and over centuries. And to really grapple with what's going on, I think we have to take that into account. So, Dr. Mona, both of you have in your work really focused on place and location as important factors in child well-being. If we can change public policy, how does that affect kids? Yeah, you know, so much of what I do as a pediatrician in Flynn is, especially after the water crisis, is is asking kind of families and victims to do more. You know, read more to your kid and sign up for this program. And, you know, this place has a free backpack program on this day and do this home visiting program. They're all good things, but it's very individual focused. And once again, asking the oppressed to do more, you know, be stronger, you know, you can overcome the insurmountable. And I think the way that kind of my work has evolved is really taking a step back and looking at what we can do at a community level to build resilience in a community rather than really focusing so much on building resilient children. And that's where kind of the, the policy work needs to be. And it's not something we often think about in health or healthcare. So we need, you know, stronger environmental regulations. We need to raise the minimum wage. We need paid parental leave. We need, you know, more investments in public health rather than in 
healthcare, which is a sickness-based and kind of reactive system. So there's a lot that we can do at a community level that is policy-based to protect children that we inadequately do right now. I feel like I'm like doing mental high fives like every five seconds. (laughs) 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 Professor Luke, do you have anything to add here? I like to say that in our social safety net, if a mom wants to go out and find someone who can tell her all the things she's doing wrong in her life, she has infinite possibilities. And uh, I think if we spend a little bit more time thinking about what we can do differently as a community to really come alongside families, that, that we would get better results. One of the chapters in our book is about government corruption. So in every one of the communities that we were in, there were examples of folks in charge who were really not looking out for families and maybe looking out for themselves. And that goes back centuries. Again, it didn't just appear out of nowhere. And sometimes that can be used to sort of blame poor communities for their own problems. But we could go back into the Appalachian community we're in and see examples from 150 years ago. Sometimes the same families who are in charge, you know, doing the same kinds of things. So when we go to very poor communities and and we ask community leaders, you know, what are your biggest challenges? They almost always point to the shortcomings of poor residents. You know, they're not working hard enough. They're not doing what they should. And they never point to these, you know, examples of government corruption, which a lot of time the dollar amounts are just way bigger. So I think it's just a matter of sort of like, where do we turn the lens? And, you know, what is our approach? And the approach of looking at the community, I think, you can have much more impact. You can have impact at scale. You can empower families. And I think the results are going to be so much bigger. Bruce, if I can add, like, so, you know, I started out as a pediatrician caring for kiddos, right? And uh, and I love my work and I, I still see patients. And, you know, within a year of being a pediatrician, I, I quickly got frustrated. I'm like, why am I taking a care of a child with a gunshot injury and we're not addressing gun violence? And, and why do I keep taking care of kids who are hospitalized with you know, they can't breathe with asthma exacerbations and we're not addressing air quality. So it's all of these things that push me to go back to school and get my, you know, public health degree in health policy, but really push me to take a step back and and look at what needs to be done at the population level to better care for our children. And on that note, you know, Dr. Mona, you came up with the idea of Rx Kids, which is amazing. Prescription for health, hope and opportunity. Can you tell us a little bit more about this idea and how your knowledge about science and history informed this initiative and what brought you together to team up with Professor Luke for this amazing project? <laughs> oh, I love this project is pure joy. Uh, it makes me and so many folks so happy. So for a long time as a pediatrician, I have literally wished for the ability to prescribe away poverty, an antidote to poverty. Uh, You know, we do so much for our patients. We have literacy programs and an embedded social worker and a WIC office and mental health care and, you know, all these things that we do. But we are not addressing a root fundamental cause of health and equity and opportunity. And that is poverty. And I am tired of shrugging my shoulders. I am tired of not being able to do anything about poverty. 
I'm like, we need to do a child allowance program in Flint. And I'm like, I have no idea how to do this. So I'm like, how am I going to do this? I'm like, OMG, like the, the, one of the world, you know, national experts on child poverty happens to be in our state. So I blindly emailed him I'm like, hey, you don't know me, but like, what do you think about, you know, doing a child poverty program, a child allowance program in Flint? And he said... I mean, in many ways, I've just been waiting for this email, just sitting by my email, waiting to hear from Dr. Mona, because uh, this is exactly what I wanted to do. So I had been studying child allowances all across the world, like country after country has a program like this. It starts with this very simple logic that raising kids is expensive and society has a reason to come alongside parents in that work. And one way to do that is to provide us some money every month that families can be empowered to spend on their rent, on their utilities, on their food, on books and toys, on childcare, whatever they think is going to be the thing that helps their kids the most. And every country that does this, we see child poverty just plummet and we see food hardship plummet. We see families and kids do better in so many ways. We embarked on this for a short period of time here in the United States in 2021 with the expanded child tax credit, which I know you all have have been champions of and, and talked a lot about. And so you know the evidence that we brought child poverty to historic low. Food hardship went to the lowest level we've ever recorded. People's credit scores went to the highest level they'd ever been because people used uh, the money to pay off their bills. So, you know, this huge amount of evidence supporting this, really the evidence-based policy of evidence-based policies. So Mona called me up. We uh, came up and had lunch and started to talk about it. And of course, we would love to do it for every kid all the way up to 18. Like normal in other countries. But that gets really expensive really, really fast. So we looked at, you know, under five and God, we would love to do it there. If there's a donor out there that wants to fund that, like we'll do it tomorrow. But really, we honed in on this first year of life and that prenatal period, too, as this incredibly important period of cognitive development and babies' brains doubling in size. I, I know now that I hang out with pediatricians on a daily basis. <laughs> so it also turns out that, that this maternal infant window, which I didn't know, is also the most economically vulnerable window. We know that families with the youngest children are poorer, but it's actually it actually peaks around childbirth. So right before a baby is born, moms often lose income and babies are expensive. They need stuff. And after the baby is born, childcare is expensive. Parental leave policies are lacking. So that really persists until the first year of life. And for me as a pediatrician, that is maddening. Like this is the most critical neurodevelopmental period in a child's life, but it is also the most economically vulnerable period. So RX kids will be prescribing a one-time prenatal allowance in mid-pregnancy, $1,500, and then it's $500 a month for the first 12 months of life. So it's a maternal kind of infant universal child allowance program. So this has never been done before. It's for the whole city. There's no income testing because fundamentally Mentally, this is about how we are supposed to care for each other. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think one of the great things that you guys have really hit on here is that at the moment when kids probably need the greatest investment, right? Yeah. That's when families are their poorest. I mean, you guys have this amazing chart on the poverty level of kids who are infants as the highest of all. So right in the life course, that's when we need to be making the most investments and we're actually do the yeah. opposite. Coming up after the break, Dr. Mona and Professor Luke explain why they chose to make the RX Kids program universal. 
Making the world a better place for all children can seem like an impossibly huge task. Some of you may be thinking, I am just one person. What could I possibly do to make a difference? I'm Leila Nimatala, Vice President of Advocacy and Mobilization at First Focus on Children. And I'm inviting you to join us and become one of our volunteer advocates, whom we call our Ambassadors for Children. Ambassadors are our most active child advocates who raise critical issues with the U.S. Congress and with the administration related to child policy and funding decisions, both for kids in the U.S. and worldwide. But don't take my word for it. We asked one of our ambassadors to share her experience. I am Katie Landa. I live in New York City. I uh, currently work as a researcher for an institute called the Child and Family Research Center at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. I joined the Ambassador Program because it's important to me to participate in working towards public policies that support children and their families. And I would encourage you to become an ambassador if you would like to become a part of a very supportive and warm network of people that values teaching and learning and activism towards creating a more just and caring country. Thank you. So please join us, won't you? Check out campaignforchildren.org backslash ambassadors on how to become a first Focus on Children ambassador, and to link up with our fabulous community of committed child advocates. First Focus on Children is a bipartisan advocacy organization dedicated to making children and families the priority in federal policy and budget decisions. First Focus on Children moves beyond individual issues to serve a more important role, child advocacy. We educate lawmakers and the American public about the issues facing children. To learn more about our work and ways that you can become ambassadors, go to firstfocus.org. Coming up later in State of Play, we are inviting Kara Baldari, our Vice President of Family Economics, Housing, and Homelessness at First Focus to talk about child poverty in America. I love that this is a Michigan State, Michigan collaboration. And and see here in Washington, you know, we deal with the Republicans, Democrats fighting. And hey, if Michigan State and Michigan come together, right? Like, so can we do this for kids? Yeah, that's pretty amazing that we're working together. But I think also, like, we've seen a lot of interest from all sides of the aisle for this program. Red states and blue states. So folks in Indiana and North Carolina, lots of other states want to do this. And I think there's especially interest in the kind of the prenatal piece from um, more conservative folks. But also people are okay with this because it ends at 12 months. So you lose some of the typical arguments about cash assistance in terms of back to work and dependency. So lots of kind of broad interest um, has developed for this program. In that partnership, that partnership of U of M and MSU, you know, I hope symbolizes our belief that like, when it comes to families with babies, we should all be coming together. Yeah. So the biggest part, like RxKids, is an unconditional cash transfer. 
It's for every family in the city. We're not picking a few winners, you know, like 100 families in a lottery or anything, everyone. But we're also going to be inviting organizations across the city to think about what more can they do or, you know, what different things can they do to really come alongside and support and empower families with the youngest kids. Why did you guys decide to make it universal? Like you could have chosen to really just focus on poor kids, understanding that there's a limited amount of money, but you really you've made this commitment to make a universal credit. Um, I can start and then maybe pass it on to Luke. I think there's a, a few reasons. And the first I kind of alluded to that, that this is what we should be doing. This is how we should be caring for moms and babies. So part of this work is, yes, about economic stability and all the outcomes that we hope to look at, but it's also about rebuilding that social contract between kind of government and institutions and, and residents. That's one reason we wanted to, it to be universal. And I think the second reason it's it's more efficient. Our application form is really short. You know, when you have any kind of means testing or eligibility requirements, it's more of an administrative burden. We've had like libertarians who are excited about this kind of work because it's less, you know, bureaucracy when it's universal. I've really come to appreciate that when we means test, when we income test, we actually are also sending very subtle signals of what we think of families. So the messaging becomes very different. It becomes a, you aren't handling your business. And so we're going to give you this money. And and usually uh, just because of our long-term history, like going back to you know what I was saying, this all didn't appear out of thin air. But once we put an income test in place, we spend an awful lot of time guarding that. You know, applications, you know, as Mona mentioned, like you start to add questions. You're like, oh, well, what if they have assets? Oh, what if they have a car? And so each time you do that, you're sending signals to, to families that you don't trust them, that the aid has a different form. And so interestingly, there are some studies that show when you universalize a program, the biggest impact is increasing take up among the people who are already eligible. So it's not the biggest impact is making it available to, to everyone. It's, it's actually increasing the number of families who could have gotten it before, but didn't either because the process was arduous or they didn't like the way it made them feel. I'll just mention one other thing, which is when we give a benefit to one family and we say, oh, to another family, you're above the line and you aren't going to get it. But they're struggling, too. It turns out raising kids is really expensive, whether it's putting food on the table or that formula that costs a lot because Diapers. of the child's special need. Diapers. When we put an income test in place, we create animosity between people who are below it and people who are higher above that threshold. And so I think that's a big part of why the child tax credit was so popular. In many ways, we're doing the exact same thing that we did with our welfare program, except without this, this means test, this income test, we're giving it to very poor kids, working poor kids, upper middle class kids. And we're saying we care about all the kids. And, you know, I think you can put an income test up at the very, very top. But anytime you exclude people, I think you reduce the number of people who uh, care about the program. And so going more universal, I think it makes it a more popular program and um, a more stable program over time. Yeah. To that point, Professor Luke, you've done a lot of research that has demonstrated that the development of kids is critical to their long-term success and that poverty really impedes that. 
Can you explain why that is? So, you know, kids, especially in that first year, but up through uh, the life course, they're developing and so much of what it impacts us uh, when we're older is shaped by our experiences early in life as we're sort of learning about the world as our bodies are growing. And so you can think of all of the reasons related to economic instability that impact uh, kids. So if I if I have a stable place to live, I know where I'm sleeping, I'm going to sleep better. Food. If I have, have a stable source of food, I'm going to do better in school. So you can sort of see these ripples that are going out into every single part of life. And so when we intervene earlier and we come alongside families, we can have the longer impact of changing the life course, right? Sort of reshaping the, the scope and setting kids up to succeed over time. There's a great article that Luke cites, $1,000 investment in the first year of life reaps greater earnings in their 30s. Yeah. Paper in the Quarterly Journal of uh, Economics shows this just, you know, that extra $1,000 in that first year pays dividends and earnings in people's 30s. I think so often in, in children's policy, everything's so siloed, right? So people think about after school or you know, early childhood or youth development programs. What's so incredible about the work that both of you have done is you really get the holistic nature of kids. You both have have tackled these issues in your own sector, but you think about it so much more broadly. What sort of makes you think about the kids more holistically than I think in, in most most of our field, people really do kind of only, you know, delve into their one issue. Yes, Bruce, I agree with you. We don't look at kids holistically. I, I keep myself up at night. Like, why don't we care about kids in terms of our policies, our inaction on things like climate change and gun violence and cuts to WIC and SNAP and Medicaid and, you know, how we fund education, environmental. Like, there's so many examples of how we fail to care for kids. And, you know, this is an example of how we can do better, but kids need a seat at the table. Like we need a secretary for children. We need that White House office for kids. Like we need a voice for kids that brings together these silos because it's not just in HHS, it's also in education and it's in here and here and here. And there's not this consistent voice for children. You know, we're crossing disciplines and I think it's been we're raising money for this program. And, you know, it's been frustrating for foundations because like, well, well, this is not just early childhood. It's also like racial equity and it's economic development and it's democracy building. Like you fit into so many buckets. I'm like, yes, the world of children is intersectional. We have to take a step back and see how we can, you know, holistically support them. 100%. Professor Schaefer, do you have anything to add? Yeah, I think I would just say that the, the siloed approach is it's a selfish approach, right? It's like, we're going to make kids wrap around the way that our work is structured and think about only what we're doing. And you just miss so much. And I think trying to see the whole uh, can help you understand your your own work more. It can help you understand how it fits in. And, and really, that's how kids live their lives. And so we really need to wrap ourselves around how kids' lives work and not you know, around the way our work happens to be structured. I love that. So this last question, you guys are going to have good answers for me. I could already feel it. We've been asking all our guests, what songs, albums do you turn to? You know, after you've been up all night thinking about, gee whiz, like, why aren't people thinking of kids when you get up? 
what songs, what albums, like what's your go-to for inspiration? <laughs> well, we are hosting a concert. So RX Kids, it, the public celebration is on Valentine's Day because this is fundamentally about how we love our mamas and babies. So there's going to be love songs throughout the night in celebration of this program. So we're working on that playlist right now. <laughs> so there's lots of songs, but they're mainly like love songs. <laughs> and Luke is actually um, a performer. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have him answer that question first. <laughs> Oh, man, this project gives me so much joy. And I, I literally can't talk about it without smiling. So I have found myself going to um, a lot of you too, you know, beautiful day uh, in the name of love, all of those. But also, um, there's a great Aladdin song, A Whole New World. And so that is also one that's been going through my head. It's all sort of thinking about like, really, we could live in a different world. The way things are, it doesn't have to be that way. And I think the child tax credit showed, I mean, in a short amount of times, we made families a lot better off. And so that's the way we could live. And really, this project, there's so much to be completely depressed about and sad about in the world right now. And this is a program that we hope brings hope, hope to families in Flint but also to our funders, you know, any funder out there, uh, you know, gets really happy when they fund this project and people all over. Yeah, I'm not going to add anything because that was beautiful. <laughs> you don't have a song? I, I agree with his song. <laughs> <laughs> our playlist is going to be strong. We, we will provide you the playlist. Oh, I love it. <laughs> awesome. As of now, it has Aretha Franklin to Afrobeats. <laughs> So we just want to thank you guys so much for being with us today and for all you do, like you're not only do amazing work all the time, but now you're doing this whole other project on top of all that great work. And so, you know, I hope that RX Kids is wildly successful, but not only that, that I hope is exactly what you said. I hope that people see this as inspirational and not only do other locations take it up, but I hope Congress... Yep that they restore the yep. fully refundable yep. child tax credit or make a, you know, a universal credit the way you guys are talking about it. And we give this to everybody. Yes. It's what we need to do. So. Yes, Amen. we agree. We agree. Thank <laughs> you so much. Thanks to both of you for your leadership in this field and speaking on behalf of kids. Thank you. In today's state of play, we're welcoming Kara Baldari, our Vice President of Family Economics, Housing, and Homelessness at First Focus. Welcome, Kara. Thanks so much for having me. So we'll jump right into it. You know, we just wrapped up with Dr. Mona and Professor Luke. Such a fun interview. And they're on undertaking an innovative effort, you know, through their Kids RX initiative to support pregnant women and infants in Flint, Michigan. You know, as someone that leads family economics, in your opinion, why is this effort so important? And what can it inform about us cutting child poverty in America? I mean, I think this program is so important because we know that cash transfers like what we're going to see in the RX program make a huge impact for kids, both in the short and long term. And so we know that the the money received from this program for families in Flint is going to have, you know, hugely consequential and positive impacts um, for the children of Flint. And, you know, I think we're going to get into all the evidence that's out there already, you know, further on. But we already have a mountain of evidence that when households with children receive an increase in income, 
you know, such as through a cash transfer, the parents and caretakers in the household spend it on resources that improves their children's well-being and their healthy development. We also know that as a result of this increased income, we see reduced stress in the household, you know, which gives parents and caretakers more bandwidth for their kids, which makes sense, right? When you're not constantly worried about how you're going to put food on the table, right, or cover the next bill, you have a little more capacity, right, to spend time with your kids. And I think this program will also just add to the evidence we already have about the positive impacts of cash transfers and assistance for kids. Um, and I think will really be helpful in building the momentum that we need to get a permanent national child benefit program established. We saw, Ray, a temporary cash assistance program passed in the American Rescue Plan Act in 2021, but we know those payments have since expired. And so we need to, to keep up the momentum to get a, a permanent program established. And I think this program will just help to show why cash transfers are so important. I think that one of the things too that we've really learned over time, as you've pointed out here, is cutting child poverty really does impact every aspect of the lives of kids. And, you know, as you have done, you know, amazing work in leading the Child Poverty Action Group here in the United States, one of the things I remember us doing was really looking at lessons learned from other countries. And we had no, numerous conversations with folks like in the UK and the work they've done. And so why would this be important in the U.S.? And what lessons can we learn from those other countries like the U.K. and Canada who have successfully cut child poverty in the past? Well, yeah. I mean, the U.S. has long had a higher rate of child poverty than other wealthy countries because we have failed to sufficiently invest in our kids. And so I think we've long been inspired by other countries, right, who have said we are going to make child poverty a priority, right? And then have made more progress than we have in reducing child poverty because they made it a priority. We started the U.S. Child Poverty Action Group right in 2016, which I can't believe it's it's been around that long. But we knew that we needed to bring advocates together who were separately advocating for child poverty right across different sectors to come together and unify to say, you know, the U.S. needs to make child poverty reduction a priority. And so the goal of the group is to set a national child poverty reduction target in the U.S. We have the goal now of cutting it at least in half, right, our child poverty rate at least in half within five years. And there's national legislation, the Child Poverty Reduction Act, that would codify such a target, right, and take steps to improve data around child poverty. So we cut child poverty nearly in half in the U.S. in 2021, right, because we passed policies through the American Rescue Plan, such as improvements to the child tax credit, right, that got cash immediately in the hands of families like the Rx program will do. But lawmakers let that program, let those improvements, the child tax credit expire, and now we're seeing increases in child poverty. So, you know, we got our child poverty rate to be more on the level of what we see, right, in other wealthy countries, but now we're backsliding. So clearly... We need to build more political will. We need more accountability. Setting a target is really helpful to doing that. Just having that goal, right, gives a tool to advocates to hold lawmakers accountable to, to keeping it on, on top of their list when we know they have a lot of other things that are calling their attention. Um, and so we continue to advocate for such a target, both for the Biden administration to establish a target as well as, right, Congress to codify a target 
into law. And we think that's a really important step towards passing all of the policies that we know are needed to reduce child poverty in the long term. We know child poverty is a political choice, right? We can make progress when we have the, the political will. And it's not just other countries that have set targets. There are child poverty targets in place in New York, in Puerto Rico, in California in some form. And, you know, so all of those places are are taking really significant steps towards child poverty reduction. So there is momentum. We know that a lot of states have passed their own child tax credits, right, that are reducing child poverty on the state level. So, you know, we, we have to keep up the momentum. And again, I think a target is... Um, a really important tool to doing so. And, you know, Kara, in all the work we do, it's cross-sector, right? It's, we don't look at one issue in isolation. And I think child poverty is definitely one of those issues that inter- intersect with several other issues. In a previous podcast, we had the opportunity to actually speak with Dr. Kirabo Jackson and, you know, his whole frame and research around money matters and investments in children, especially in the areas of early childhood and education, have both, you know, a short-term and a long-term outcome for children. From your perspective and research on cutting child poverty, what does the research tell us about the impact this may or may not have on you know, an array of child outcomes. Yeah. I mean, I think as I referenced earlier, we have a lot of evidence to show that money matters for reducing child poverty, right? First Focus advocated for a National Academy of Sciences study on child poverty that was released in 2019 called A Roadmap to Reducing Child Poverty that included a whole long list of studies that show, right, that when families, again, receive an increase in income, such as through cash transfers, that kids do better in the short and long term. And again, that's through a few different pathways. It's because parents and caretakers in the household spend that money on resources that benefit kids. And we saw that in the example of the improvements to the child tax credit, right? When families got monthly payments for the first half of 2021, They spent it on food. They spent it on diapers. They spent it on housing costs, right? They spent it on educational materials for their kids or new clothes for school. And all these things nourish kids, right? They help improve their physical health. They allow them to focus in school. And so they do better in school. All of the things that we know, right, that kids need to do well And the studies we have, you know, for the long term show that when kids are in a household that receive an increase in income, they have better physical health as adults, right? They have lower rates of asthma. Again, they do better in school. Their test scores are higher, right? You know, pregnant people who receive these payments while they have a child in utero, there's higher birth weight for the child, right? Which is directly associated with higher earnings as adults. Like, and all these things sound logical, when we give kids resources, right, that help their physical and mental health, they do better. And so we know that this money is an investment in kids, right? It's not just, it's not a handout, it's a hand up. And it impacts our greater society. You know, child poverty costs our country upwards of $1 trillion, that's with a T, $1 trillion a year. And so we can really improve our economy in the short and long term by investing in our kids. It's a no-brainer, you know, it's like the best investment we can make, right? You know, at First Focus, we believe every single child, right, deserves the chance for a, a happy, healthy, joyful life. 
We have huge racial disparities in child poverty because we have long-lasting inequities in our society. And we know that investments such as cash transfers, like what we're seeing with the Rx program, right, really reduce those disparities and really can help all kids thrive. So, you know, we have all the evidence we need. It's great to continue to build it, right, like through programs like the Rx, but we know what works. We just have to keep the heat up on our lawmakers. Currently, advocates at First Focus, like myself and some of my colleagues, many of the other partner organizations we work with are right now, right, advocating for Congress to pass a deal that would make improvements to the child tax credit that would help more kids in need. So this is all happening in in real time. And we feel encouraged that we will continue to see progress. So thank you, Kara, for joining us today on The State of Play and on our podcast. We really appreciate it. Thanks again for having me. Thank you, Kara. This is Speaking of Kids. Thanks for listening. I'm Bruce Leslie. And I'm Masela Chalubi. Special thanks to our guests, Dr. Mona Hanna Atisha, Professor Luke Schaefer, and Kara Baldari. Speaking of Kids is a podcast by First Focus on Children. Elizabeth Windham is the supervising producer, and Julia Windham is the associate producer. Layla Nimitala is the advocacy and mobilization producer, and the senior producer is Jay Woodward. Our theme music is Don't Look Twice by Sam Barsh. For more information about this week's episode, go to firstfocus.org. You can find all of our links in our show notes. If you have any thoughts, questions, or interest in becoming a First Focus on Children ambassador, email us at speakingofkids at firstfocus.org. And please follow, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. Speaking of Kids is produced by Winhaven Productions and Blue Jay Atlantic.